We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Heavenly Father, it is well. It is well because you have done so much for us. You have shown us your great love in revealing yourself to us and by sending your Son to die on the cross for us. You love us in so many ways, ways that we acknowledge and ways that we ignore, ways that are evident and ways that are not. And we give you praise for your great, great love. As we open your word, I pray that you would guide our time together, that we may seek and know the God that we worship even better. May identify things in our lives that are to be cast out, and I pray that you would guide us in truth today. It's in your son's name. Amen. So it's summer, as you know, because you've walked outside today, and it's hot. So hot. And I'm excited because I've got a great vacation lined up for my family. So pumped. It's, it, I've got seven days away. We're going to go. And, and I don't really know what to expect, so we've got to buy a bunch of different kind of clothes. Could be rainy, could be, could be warm. I don't really know what to expect, but I'm going to buy one of those big car carriers that you put on top of your car that it tells everybody, ha ha, you're going to work, but I'm going on vacation. <laughs> and I'm so, so very excited about the hotel we've got. I can't wait for our vacation to Plano. All joking aside, we're not really taking a vacation to Plano. Plano, no, no offense to Plano, Plano's a great place. But it would be absolutely ridiculous if I told you I was going on vacation and I was taking my wife and my daughters on vacation to Plano. You would be like, why are you getting a hotel? Why don't you just commute, I guess, if you want to go to Plano for seven days in a row? It would be a vacation really in name only. It would be a vacation just to say that I went on vacation. Right? It would be a vacation that when I laid my head down at night, I'd be able to say, yep, took my family on a vacation. I'm a good husband and father. And if we're not careful, many of us in this room, some of us in this room, your faith, your religion could be like my vacation to Plano. It's a vacation in name only. It's a faith. It's a religion in name only. It is something that helps you to sleep better at night because you can say, yep, I did the things I needed to do. I'm a good person. I can go home and go to bed and be okay. What if your faith, what if all of the religious observances that you do were merely for everybody else and for yourself so that you could sleep a little bit better at night? We're continuing on in our study of the Romans uh, book of Romans, right? We're doing the Romans road trip. And we started out where? Last week in Romans 1 in what we called Sin City, the city of depravity, where everybody starts out. And, and as Jeff preached last week, he motivated us to leave Sin City and to do so by the way of the cross. But there are two suburbs just outside Sin City, and many of us seeking to validate ourselves and seeking not to go the way of the cross, but seeking to justify ourselves, we'll wind up living our entire existence in these two suburbs of Sin City and think that we're right with God. And that's pretty much what Romans 2 is about. We're going to be in Romans 2 today. 
So I want us to talk about the Twin Cities today and find out if we're living there or if maybe you've just got a P.O. box there where you still get mail and see how we might move past the Twin Cities and actually go on mission, follow Jesus every day of our lives. So the first town that we might stop in, the first suburb we're going to talk about today is we might settle in hypocrisy. We may settle in hypocrisy. So Romans 2 is a logical progression of thought from Romans 1, particularly the laundry list of sin that is mentioned at the end of Romans 1. Let's look at the end of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, this is verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, as we read this list, I'm confident that 99% of the people in this room can do two things with at least one item from that list. You can point to at least one item in that list and say, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. I, I, I have. And then the second thing you can say about it is, I did it, and it was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. And so when people start realizing that they've done things wrong, they seek to make it right, typically. Typically, we seek to, to rectify the situation in some way, shape, or form. And that's what Romans 2 is kind of about. It's about this concept of hypocrisy where we, we seek to, to move away from the sin and the depravity of Romans 1, 1, of Sin City, and seek to move into sort of this works-based righteousness. And this form, one of the first ways it looks like is hypocrisy. And this actually happens in two simultaneous movements. There's two things going on at the same time. The first thing that we do is we downplay our failings. We minimize or downplay our failings. Look at Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul's describing classic hypocrisy here. Looking down on other people, condemning other people for doing something, and then going and doing it yourself. It's classic hypocrisy. But we're very sophisticated in the way that we do our condemnation of other people. Very sophisticated the way we do our hypocrisy. We give it different names, okay? So I don't commit adultery. I fantasize. It's okay to have a little fantasy every once in a while. As long as I'm not acting on it, it's okay, right? I don't steal. I find loopholes in the tax code. I don't steal. It's the government's fault for not fixing that. That's not theft. I don't lie, I just don't tell the whole truth. So if you ask me, I'll tell you the bare minimum to call it honesty and then leave out other details that might make me look bad. We give things different names. And in one sense, the reason why we do this is because I don't like to admit that I've done the things in Romans 1. I don't like to admit that I've lived in Sin City. I don't want to be called malicious. I don't want to be called hater of my parents or disobedient to my parents. I don't want to be called foolish or faithless or heartless or ruthless. And so I give it cute names like, I get irritable every once in a while. I have a little bit of a temper. We downplay our failings. We minimize them. 
I want to sound better than I am because I want God, I want other people, and honestly, if I'm truthful about it, I want myself to think I'm not that bad of a person. And I think this is one of the reasons why confession is really hard for us. Confessing to other people, especially as Baptists, we don't like doing it because we feel like other traditions do that thing. We don't actually like to name the sins that we do. And when we don't do that, you know what it actually does? It gives those sins more power over us than they already have. But when you throw it out into the light and you say, yeah, I've done this and I need help, they lose that grip. They lose some of that power. I've seen that happen in my own life, right? Fantasy can tear a family apart just as easily as adultery can. Bitterness can poison a relationship just like poisoning a person can ruin a relationship. Self-promotion can be just as repugnant as boastful bragging. So we downplay our failings. We try to minimize them. At the same time, so we're downplaying our failings, we amplify the failings of other people. We amplify the failings of other people. So while we diminish the egregiousness of our stuff, we elevate theirs. We make them a bigger deal. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly, rightly means truthfully, we, we agree with this is the right thing to do, falls on those who practice such things. So we say, yes, people that done, have done that deserve the punishment from God. We want to see people who are evil punished. The first century Jew wanted to see evil people punished. That's who Paul is writing to. He's kind of this hypothetical Jewish person that he's having a conversation with. And the first century Jew wanted evildoers to be punished. Now, the first century Jew thought all Gentiles were the ones who needed to be punished for the most part. In our day and age, it's people who do evil things. It's bad people, right? People who are murderers, thieves, child abusers, spouse abusers, rapists. Those are the people we want to see punished, right? We don't get creative in our language when it comes to them. If you see a politician come on TV and say, I'm sorry for the indiscretion that I had with that woman. We say to ourselves, we, we point at our TV and we say, that's not an indiscretion, that's an affair. But in my own life, I call it an indiscretion, right? I don't actually use the words. We don't call it a white lie. We say that, that the system is full of deceit and corruption. We don't call it taking advantage of the system. We call it theft. And when we come across it, we demand justice, often without mercy, either from our judicial system or from God's eternal justice system. And I think this is one of the reasons why settling down in the town of hypocrisy actually is so appealing. It's so appealing. I want to stay here because it feeds our desire to be unique. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer for many of us is, yeah, actually I do. I'm an exception. I'm a special case. You don't understand. I'm not the worst of the worst. I'm a little bit better. I'm kind of middle of the road. There are plenty of people worse than me. There's Hitlers. There's Stalins. There's people that commit genocide. There's white supremacists. There's all of them. God's got enough to worry about with them. He doesn't, I'm middle of the road. I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. As long as I'm not the worst person in my friend group, at my work, in my neighborhood, in my family, I feel like I'm probably okay because I'm special. I'm unique. We think these verses in Romans are meant for somebody else and not for me. 
And what I do is I actively cultivate this narrative of uniqueness in my life, this special case, right? We focus on news from outlets that agree with everything we think and condemn the people that we condemn. That's really helpful for living in the town of hypocrisy. I watch reality TV that reminds me I'm not as jacked up as other people are. Thank you, Kardashians. I surround my pe- myself with people who are good like me and bad like me. Because for them to call me out, they've got to call themselves out too. I've insulated myself. The seduction of the town of hypocrisy is that it makes me feel special by making most other people worse than me. I become the paragon of virtue. I become better than everybody else. And you forget the deep, deep truth that honestly, I'm just as guilty as everybody else is. What the town of hypocrisy does, what the slogan on the sign outside the town says, is welcome to hypocrisy, where you don't have to be human anymore. You can be more like God. You can be special. You can be the exception. It's a long slogan for a town, but it is what it is. And so we wind up settling in the town of hypocrisy. But if that's not where you wound up living, there's actually another city across the river. It's called the town of self-deception. We stay in self-deception. So like I said, Romans 2 is this hypothetical conversation between Paul and, and a Jewish brother or sister. And he's arguing, they're arguing that they're special. They won't be judged as harshly by God simply because they're Jewish. And Paul walks from verse 6 to verse 16 of chapter 2, kind of dismantling this argument as only Paul can do. And then in verse 17, the conversation actually kind of comes to a head because Paul takes the very things that the Jew would have put his stock in and goes about invalidating them. Goes about invalidating Look at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Paul is is looking and identifying these things that they would have held on to and he's trying to undermine them. And you know what happens? You read this and you think, oh, this is about Jewish people. It's not just about Jewish people. It's about religious people. Religious people do the same thing. I'm a good person. I do good things. I do good religious acts. And I'm a good person. And that's one of the ways they try to get out of the town of self-deception, or the, the town of Sin City. Trying to get out of Sin City, I'm going to go and be religious. I'm going to go and be my own righteousness. One of the things about the town of self-deception is that you, you view sin and, and good works on a scale. And Jeff talked about this last week. You say, okay, cool, I'm on board with the fact that I've done bad things, but I'm going to spend the rest of my life putting good things over here in this scale, and try and tip the balance back in my favor. And when you start doing that, you're not living in the town of hypocrisy anymore. You've moved over to the town of self-deception. So how do we know that we've changed zip codes? How do we know that we're in a different town? Well, one, it's all about who you are. It's all about who you are. Verse 17 again. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know His will, and approve what is excellent... Because you are instructed from the law. Let's stop right there. The Jews of Paul's day liked to list the things that made them special. They were special because they had a covenant with God, right? The Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament covenant made on Mount Sinai. We're special, we're unique. They possessed God's law. They had a revelation that was higher and above what Gentiles had. Paul even talks about this. Says it's a good thing that they have the law. They like to talk about their unique place before God. 
were special. And because they had these special advantages, they naturally believed that they were capable of being the height of humanity. They're better than everybody else because God chose them. That's what makes them better. That's what they told themselves. And this attitude can describe many of us who've been in church for a long time. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make me acceptable to God. This is what one might think. But rather, Jesus died on the cross to make my actions acceptable to God. So Jesus kind of opened the way, and then I'm able to walk through it with my own works, my own good deeds, the own things that I've done. And that's what a religious person might think. That's what some of you actually think Christianity is. Is getting a, a, a jumper cable from Jesus at the cross on your religious moral life, and now everything you do like, is just you kind of paying God back. It's not the gospel. And if somebody told you that, guess what? They're wrong. On top of that, they're a heretic. Going to church, reading my Bible, being in a connect group, all of these things are things that I do to become what? A better person. That's what this religious person might think. I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better employee. I want to be a better employer. I want to be a better spouse, a roommate, a human being. And so I'm going to go to church. I'm going to go to connect group. I'm going to do these things so I can become better. If that's what you say, you might live in the town of self-deception. Because you don't look at Jesus as your Savior. He's more like your personal trainer. So you come, this is your gym, and you come in and, and your, your trainer says, pound out about seven chapters this week. And you do your reps, and you feel good about yourself. And you go on with life. It's all about you becoming a better person. The attitude behind this is, if I am becoming a better person, if I'm improving, if I'm moving past the town, the, the city of sin, then God has to accept me because I'm becoming better. I'm going to say something right now that's going to wake you up out of, your, out of our, our stupor. God has zero interest in you becoming a better person. Zero. He doesn't care. He wants you to become a new creation. And good luck doing that on your own. Because you can't. You can't. God doesn't care about you becoming better. He wants you to be new. He wants you to be new. So it's all about who you are. Another way you might know if you're in the town of self-deception is it's all about what you do. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's stop right there. First century Judaism was different than modern day Judaism is. In one major way, they actually had a temple to offer sacrifices in. But another way that, that it, is, it was different is modern-day Judaism doesn't really seek out converts. Very rarely. I don't, I, I've never had an instance where I've been waiting for something and a, and a Jewish person came up and tried to convince me to become Jewish. In fact, I believe, if I read this right, that if you wanted to go to a rabbi and become Jewish, it's, it's part of their tradition that you actually get rejected three times. So they would, you'd go to them and say, hey, I want to become Jewish. They say, no, 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 you don't want to become Jewish. And you have to go back again and be like, I want to become, no, 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 you, no, no. And then the third time they'd say, okay, let's talk about what that looks like. And then they would further try to convince you not to become Jewish. First century Judaism is very, very different. There's evidence, there's sufficient evidence to know that they actually conversed with the Gentile world putting their faith against other faiths, and even some evidence 
that there were evangelical Jews. They were going out and trying to uh, convert other people to Judaism. In fact, some people think that's why the, the Roman Empire, after it converted to Christianity, actually began to outlaw Jewish proselytization because they were actually winning converts back from the church. First century Judaism was all about teaching the rest of the world the law. And they thought that if we're teaching everybody the law, if we're actually doing this, then we're the teachers, we're the exception. God can't judge us harshly. He can't look down on us because we're doing what He's called us to do. We're serving. We're going on mission trips. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. You know what? Modern day Christianity has kind of fallen into some of the same traps. As long as I'm serving... As long as I'm helping people, as long as I'm volunteering, as long as I'm a good neighbor, as long as I'm even sharing my faith, I'm good, right? Because I wouldn't be doing all these good things. I wouldn't be doing all of this if I wasn't genuinely a believer, right? Well, maybe. There's evidence of some fruit there, possibly. But you also have to take into account the culture that you live in. You live in a culture that prizes volunteering, especially in our day and age, the 21st century. My generation, millennials, my gosh, if you don't volunteer somewhere, then you're not a real millennial. Some of you might be like, whew, I'm not a real millennial. Did you know that the nonprofit sector in our country over the last 10 years has grown 20%? 20%. Now, I'm not a business person, but I do know enough to know that if your business grew 2 to 3%, you'd be pretty pumped. 20% is huge. It's epic growth. Epic growth. In a democracy like ours, serving is a part of the culture. Volunteering is, we prize, we, we talk about our heroes being people who have served, who volunteered. We had Memorial Day a few weeks ago, right? People that have served and laid down their lives. We, we prize them. In affluent areas like ours, we prize volunteering. And I think this is for two reasons, and I kind of hope, kind of hope I don't, kind of hope I do step on toes here. Some of us in our affluent area that we live in, we volunteer because we're bored. You may be retired early, you made your money early, or maybe your, your spouse goes to work and you get to stay home and you're like, I'm kind of bored, kids are at school, I'm going to go volunteer somewhere. And you've you're volunteering because you're bored, not because you're trying to serve anybody. Or we volunteer because, again, we like to sleep well at night, and I don't want the rest of the world, I don't want myself to think that I'm greedy. So I'm going to go and volunteer and I'm going to go serve so I can sleep better at night and help pe make people think that I'm a good person. In fact, you could argue that volunteering is the new church membership. Because back in the day, you got involved in a church because that was sort of the, the thing that every American did. And if you wanted to make connections in the business world, if you wanted to, to be thought well of in society, you were a member of a church. You were a deacon in a church. Now people don't care about that. Church membership doesn't matter in the larger world. Volunteering does. Do you know you're 60% more likely to get hired for a job if you have volunteering on there as part of your resume? It's free career advice for you. There you go. If you're looking for a job, go find a place to volunteer. Some of you can't graduate high school or college unless you have volunteer hours. Volunteering is a, is a form of societal capital. Some of us don't volunteer because we love Jesus. We volunteer because we want people to think well of us. We want to think well of ourselves. And you know, whether it's for God, whether we think it's for God, or whether we think it's for other people, or whatever the case it is, it's of no value in making you right with God. Matthew 7, 21-22 is what I think is the scariest verse in all of Scripture. 
Jesus is teaching, and he says, some of you who, who have, will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we serve? Didn't we volunteer? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. It should cause us pause. Because some of us will face that reality, I think. Because it's all about what you do. It's all about who you are, and it's all about what you think. Let's look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now some of you might be like, that sounds like hypocrisy. Yeah, it is. So the town of self-deception, little history here, was actually founded by uh, people from the town of hypocrisy. They just crossed the river and started the town of self-deception. Hypocrisy is very core to living in the town of self-deception. The difference is, hypocrisy is all about other people, comparing myself to other people, looking at other people, and knowing that I'm better than them. Self-deception is more internalized. I'm looking at myself, and I've either created a moral standard, or I've adopted one from somewhere else, maybe it's the Ten Commandments or Scripture or whatever, and you say, that's what I have to live up to. That's my mode for making good works or making myself right with God. I'm deceiving myself. The Jews in the same way during that day and age were going around thinking that they were the light of the world, but they hadn't let the light, the true light, penetrate their inner darkness. I talked about sleeping in the beginning of the sermon. I talked about us sleeping better at night and using religion to sleep better at night. And lighting is important for sleeping well at night, right? If I want to have a really good night's sleep at my house, I turn off all the lights inside, and I make sure that my outdoor lights are on so that things appear safe. If there's something going on, people can see in. If there's a dark house, that dark house might be vulnerable to attack. And that's the way many of us live our religious lives. The gospel is projected loudly and, and, and broadly out from us. But inside, it's pitch black inside. And you're dead asleep. It looks like somebody's home but nobody is. And this really goes at the heart of what Paul is saying here. He's saying that because of this, the name of God is ridiculed among other people who are not followers of Jesus. Because they look at our lives and they see the hypocrisy and they call us out on it. Here's the, the dirty truth about living in a town of self-deception. You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody else because, you know what, I know you're not as perfect as you seem, and you know how I know that? Because I'm not as perfect as I seem. And I haven't met anybody that's perfect yet. And God knows you're not perfect either, not just because he's omniscient, that's great, but God sees into your heart. He loves you, but he knows the motivations behind why we do what we do. And you know what the really sad part about living in the town of self-deception is? There are days when you lay your head down at night that you're not fooling yourself either. You know that you're not the person you project yourself to be. You know you're not living up to that standard that you've created for yourself. And you'll lie awake thinking about it. And you'll lose sleep over it. And you'll go get a Benadryl. Or you'll go get something to help you sleep. And you'll put that, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit away. So here we are. On our Romans road trip, we've left Sin City, and it seems like we've got a flat tire in the suburbs. Many of us get stuck in the suburbs, I guess. 
So what do we do? How do we get out? How do we get out of the Twin Cities? We've got to ask for directions. We've got to ask for directions. So in the beginning of this chapter, back in verse 4, placed between these two descriptions of the cities I talked about, Paul actually gives us the answer on how to get out. He tells us what road to take to get out of Sin City, to get out of these two uh, towns, these twin cities here. And the answer is repentance. It's repentance. The name of the highway is repentance. And this is what I mean by ask for directions. You are never going to find your way out of the depravity of Romans 1 on your own. You're never going to figure it out. Because every road you try to take is just going to dump you back in one of the twin cities. You're going to wind up in hypocrisy or you're going to wind up in self-deception. That's where you're going to wind up. Any road, any attempt you make, you have to turn to God. You have to turn to His grace that's offered through Jesus Christ to not wind up spending your whole life fooling yourself, thinking you're on road trip with Jesus and you haven't left the metroplex of Sin City. You haven't even left. You're just camped out in a Super 8 in one of those two towns. So how do we ask for directions? How do we do this? We need to first remember God's kindness. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, and this is key, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason why God does not punish sin immediately when it happens is because God is kind and He's waiting for you to turn from it. He's waiting for other people to turn from it. Our God is a kind God. He's a loving God. You know how I know He's a kind God and a loving God? He doesn't leave us in sin city. He doesn't even leave us to our own devices and make us stay in hypocrisy and self-deception. He sent His Son to pay the penalty. The things that we did in Romans 1 that we deserve, rightly deserve, Punishment for. Jesus takes that on himself on the cross, and he's resurrected. And if we put our faith in him, if we put our trust in him, if we say, that's, that's my ticket out of here. Not anything I can do, not anything I can say, not any way that I can act right. Jesus is my ticket out of here. He paid for everything, and I am counting on him 110%. That's your ticket out. That's your road out. And we've got to remember that God is kind. If you start thinking, that God is, is going to slap you down every time you come to Him, you'll never come to Him. God's great kindness should motivate us to repentance. Not legalism and not license. There's other parts about Romans that talk about that. God doesn't want you to stay in Romans 1 and He doesn't want you to stay in Romans 2 either. So when you think that God is angry with you because you're not good enough, because you failed again and again and again, it is His kindness that we are to remember. And if you reflect on God's kindness, if you take in faith, yeah, and and you look at yourself, yeah, I can understand why he might be mad at me. I've done something that violates his law. But if you come and say, Scripture teaches that God loves me and he wants me to come to him. And I'm going to take it on faith that that's true. And I'm going to go to him. And rather than trying to earn it or white knuckle it and get through it, I'm going to just turn and rest in the arms of Jesus. Didn't we just sing this song? I will arise and go to Jesus. And he will what? Embrace me in his arms. I love that song. Because it's true. It's true. So we have to remember God's kindness. We have to reject our stubbornness. Verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Have you ever been on a road trip with somebody that won't ask for directions? I see many women being like... Actually, I don't think, I think this is kind of a dying breed, 
because we have like Google Maps and Waze and stuff, and so pretty much everybody's on their phone anyway, so it's just an excuse to actually get on your phone. Um, but if you are still that person that refuses to ask for any kind of directions, even from a computer, bravo, man. Like you are a dying breed and you just hang in there, person that doesn't ask for directions. Yeah, you are, your sense of direction is infallible. I believe you. I believe you. Romans 2.5 tells us that, all joking aside, when it comes to spiritual matters, our stubbornness is quite natural. It's quite natural for us to be stubborn, to believe that the way that we've always done things, like, like you might be sitting here and be like, I've never heard this before, and I've been in church all my life. Well, guess what? Don't be stubborn and think you've been doing it right the whole time. It's not too late. Martin Luther said the entire Christian life is one of confession and repentance. If you're not confessing and repenting every single day, you're not following Jesus that day, at least. We all still make mistakes. I still have to do course corrections constantly. And you do too. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Don't stay in the Twin Cities. And just because you live there your whole life, don't think that a Super 8 in these Twin Cities or a Motel 6 is the best that it can get. Jesus Christ is calling to you and He's saying, get in the car. Let's go. Maybe tomorrow, Jesus. No! Not tomorrow. Today. Make it today. You can't think that becoming a better person will qualify. You can't put your trust in anything that you can do. You have to look outside yourself for God to rescue you. And here's why. If sin was just a behavior issue, then your theory about the scales and doing good works to balance it out would actually make sense. I've done bad things, so I will continue to do good things and it'll balance out. The problem is sin is a condition. It's a birth defect. You were born into sin. You can't get out of it. You can't fix it yourself. It's like, like I said about becoming a new creation. You can't do it on your own. A righteousness outside of yourself has to come and be a part of it. And you gain that by putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So for many of you in this room, the idea at some point of following Jesus maybe appealed to you. Maybe it appeals to you right now. And at some point, somebody came along and taught you that following Jesus is just doing a bunch of religious ritual. It's doing a bunch of good things. It's about coming to church or whatever. And you've been stuck on this like spiritual 635 of religion and ritual and routine again and again and again. And what it's created in you is you just, you hate coming to church, but you still come because you feel like you have to. You think the Bible is a great thing, but you don't read it. You pray, but only when you're really in trouble and, and then you don't really acknowledge God. That is the life of somebody just stuck in the Twin Cities. Repent. Change directions. There's only one road out of town. And it's a toll road. And the only currency accepted is the blood of Christ. You can come to Him and get it for free. He offers it in His grace for free. Pay the toll, ride the road of repentance, and get out of town. You can do that today. I was hesitant to give you any sort of concrete applications today, other than turn and repent. And here's why. I didn't want anybody, to, any, any legalists among us, which all of us in some way I guess are, to walk out of here and feel like I've got something to do, so I'm good. But here's one thing I want everybody to do. No matter how old, no matter how young, no matter where you are in life, one thing we're going to do this week together. Every day, maybe many times a day, you're going to go in prayer to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, I know that there are things in my life that are rooted in hypocrisy and rooted in self-deception. Maybe you live your whole life there. Maybe you're not a genuine believer. And you're going to ask God to show you that, reveal that to you. 
Maybe you're somebody who kind of, like I said, keeps a P.O. box in the Twin Cities. You still get mail from them, and you sometimes read it, and you believe it. And you're like, oh, that looks nice. I'd like to try and justify myself. Ask God to show you the areas of your life where you try to do that. We're going to pray that way for a week. And I guarantee you that if you pray that prayer genuinely and honestly, trusting that the Lord will reveal things in your life, guess what's going to happen? He's going to reveal things in your life, and he's going to help you get out of town. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't stay in hypocrisy trying to prove you're better than other people. Don't keep deceiving yourself, trying to live up to some standard you've created or you've imported from somewhere else. Ask for directions. Remember God's kindness. Get rid of your stubbornness. Let's get on the road, the road trip with Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are so good to us because you, you anticipate. You know what we will do. You know that our, our attempts... To, to fix ourselves. And you know that we'll believe that they actually are fixing because we see maybe product in our life. We see things happening. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that they would not be fooled by that. They'd not be deceived by that. Pray that your spirit would work and cast light in their lives. I pray that there'd be no confusion. I pray that it would be clear. I pray that people would respond and come to know you today. It's in your son's name. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.